0: Adversity is part of being human. Feeling uncomfortable is part of being human. And that's okay as long as you have a wonderful caregiver there noticing it, being present with you, being curious
1: with you. This is the Curious Neuron podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome! Hello friends, welcome back to another episode of the Curious Neuron podcast. My name is Cindy Hovington, and I am your host. Today we are talking about going beyond the behavior. I'd like to approach this by trying to change our ways of thinking you know discipline and consequences are are part of parenting but I think that we overuse them sometimes. And I want us to switch this thinking towards curiosity and compassion with our child. It doesn't mean that there aren't any rules and it doesn't mean that there's never any discipline or consequences. But if we approach it this way, which is what we'll learn today from our conversation with Dr. Mona Delahook, I think that we could approach this and this meaning parenting in ways that will help us build a relationship with our child and and you know, help them thrive as well. Before we begin, I would like to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science. Institute at the Neuro here in Montreal for supporting the Curious Neuron podcast. And if you haven't done so yet, I invite you to rate and review the podcast on five stars on iTunes. And I think you can also do this on Spotify. It just really helps the algorithm know that you're enjoying the podcast and that you want us to create more. You can follow us on Instagram at curious underscore neuron. And you can also visit our website at curiousneuron.com. So before I begin today's episode, or before we we move on to the interview, I I don't know if any of you have experienced this. So as you know, I have three kids and about eight days ago, one child got sick. It's not COVID. It was a cold with a super deep cough, um, lots of congestion, but it started, you know, eight days ago. Now (laughs) we're eight days into this. The first child who got sick is still coughing a little bit and still congested, but not that, not as bad as she was at the beginning. But the other two are just still very sick. It was one after the other. And it's just when you have three kids or even two kids, it takes so much time for these colds or these viruses to get through your home and it's draining. And now this morning I woke up with my own throat, a little bit itchy. And I was like, oh, it's my turn. But the thing is that I haven't slept for a week because, you know, every child has been coughing throughout the night, has needed help. Started with one, then the next, and the next. And now it's it's every, it's been every single night. <laughs> my husband and I have had to be up with one of the kids who needs help and is coughing, needs water every couple of minutes. It's so hard. And I just want to give a hug to all the parents right now who are going through the same thing or have gone through the same thing. We, we all have, but these moments are so difficult and it's in, in the moment, it feels like it lasts forever, but I know that it's just a moment. Hang in there if you're going through this as well. And I know I'm next now. So what I'm going to do today after I record this podcast is prepare for tomorrow, Cindy. I'm going to help her it's by, you know, going to get some foods that I could easily put together during the week. Frozen meals that exist here. We have some Italian bakeries that prepare these amazing lasagnas that are frozen, and I'm going to cook a little bit so that I don't have to do this while I'm not well. If it ends up being like my kids, it's not a good one. Today, I wanted to talk about behavior in a different way. I I wanted to interview Dr. Mona Delahook because, first of all, I don't know if you have her books. Her older one, which is called Beyond Behaviors, is just so good. It uh, It's like a workbook to help you work through parenting with your child and their behavior. And her new book, Brain Body Parenting, dives even deeper into helping us understand our child's behavior. Because I do believe very strongly that if we take the time to understand this, then we can approach it very differently. We don't see it in the lens of, you know, bad behavior or annoying or frustrating or trying to get to get to us, we see it really as some form of communication. And and they are trying to communicate something that they don't know how, except for, you know, through their behavior. My guest today is Dr. Mona Delahook. She is a licensed clinical psychologist with more than 30 years of experience caring for children and their families. You can access both these books through the show notes. I will put all the links to her books, her website, her Instagram, and some articles to help you through your child's behaviors. Because I know that these are really tough uh, moments for parents and, and that's when we need a lot of help. I'm I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I don't want to take more time than this. And please don't forget to rate the podcast and leave a review. Let me know when you do so. Send me an email at info at kirstenron.com and uh, send me a screenshot or just let me know that you left a review and I will send you a free PDF about meltdowns and tantrums that gives you a printable of a toolbox and a printable of this mountain to help your child understand when their emotions are getting bigger and when they need to ask you for help. I'll see you on the other side. Hi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. Uh, to be I am here. beyond excited. I've been following you online. I've read your books. And I just want to first thank you for everything that you've done for us parents, because you take the research and really make it so simple. All the visuals and Beyond Behaviors, you know, the iceberg and the easy worksheets that we can work on. And now your new book, I'm excited to talk about everything and to share this with parents. Uh,
0: I am so grateful. <laughs> I'm so grateful because... You know, I value this information. I think it it can reduce suffering out there for parents, for yeah. for teachers, and for most of all for children. So I'm really, really mm. excited to talk to you tonight.
1: I, let's start with the tantrums. I'm I'm saying this as I hear some going on in the background. <laughs> My <laughs> husband's giving baths, and there are two are very unhappy out of three kids right now. <laughs> um, yes, but it's so hard. You know, I talk to parents and. I think sometimes we hear a lot about staying calm in the moment and just being like so zen, and then parents are boiling inside, or they lash out and they scream, and they don't know what to do in these moments. And I get it because sometimes it's just hard. But you have such a beautiful way of looking at these behaviors and these tantrums and big emotions. Um, where do we start? Where do we start? You know, as parents, if somebody's listening and they're like, every time my child screams or has this, these meltdowns or tantrums, I just I can't control myself. Like, where do we begin? <laughs> Right. Right. Well, we begin with the
0: word that I think is is the most important word in parenting. We begin with self-compassion.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That is, we, we literally or figuratively put a hand over our heart and realize when we're triggered. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of parents feel guilty for being triggered. Yes. Or when your child is in a tantrum, then you start getting really upset and activated we we tend to think oh there's something wrong with me i'm a bad parent mm-hmm. but we have to understand that these instinctual automatic reactions really come from the body and not from our thinking mind our intentionality as parents even people like me mm-hmm. <laughs> who oh, who know this information and who know how important it is to stay calm sometimes our body shifts into a different pathway mm-hmm. and we're not always aware of what that trigger is and we all have histories um, you know we all come to the table in you know as a parent with our own different histories mm-hmm. and our own different triggers so I think first of all if we feel triggered if you're if you feel like you're maybe falling short on parenting because you feel upset a lot or you get agitated when your child gets agitated. Mm-hmm please know you're not alone. It's a very human response. And we're just beginning to discover more about this whole idea about co-regulation. You know, how do we stay calm when our child is having such a hard time, a meltdown, thrashing around? It's very difficult to do actually, but we can, we can talk about how we can, you know, make it
1: into easy steps. <laughs> I, you know, I think that a big part of this as well is a bit of a mi- mindset. So you mentioned the self-compassion part, but I, I find for me that mindset shift of how I view a tantrum. So I, I like same similar to you, I, I came into parenting and I was like, I got this, you know, I've yeah. read the research, I've got this. And then my firstborn started having a few tantrums closer to two and a half, three. And I was like, mm-hmm. I don't have this. <laughs> have no control <laughs> yeah. over this because I had right. never really anticipated. I had yeah. never experienced the tantrum. You know, nobody, no adult had thrown a blue cup at me because they weren't happy that I gave them what they asked for. I didn't know how to deal with that. And it exactly. just surfaced so many different aspects of myself that I didn't know I had. And a lot came from my own childhood. So I think the first thing I also, you know, was discovering myself, but the way that I was viewing her tantrums and I had to keep reminding myself, we look at it as bad behavior. I was raised where anything that was other than happiness was you being disrespectful and and being bad. You know, you don't, you shouldn't be angry about something because I gave you this house and the food in front of you and, you know, that's how it should be. Do you think that that part of it, I'm assuming yes, because of your books, but what, what is it that, you know, does that mindset shift make a difference for parents?
0: I think that mindset shift is the is the kernel mm. of the paradigm shift in, in how we understand human behavior, actually. Mm-hmm. How we understand children, how we understand parenting. Because chances are we were raised with parents who believed that all the behaviors are um, you know, intentional, mm. volitional either good or bad behaviors, respectful or disrespectful behaviors, or those emotions that they were afraid of. Like if we were scared, they may say, and again, well-meaning parents, no blame, no shame, mom, dad, Um, but to say, there's nothing to be afraid of, or you shouldn't be so angry. There are many children in the world who'd have far less than you. Those (laughs) Those kinds of things that that are in our cultural DNA mm. because we don't properly understand the stress response. Mm. So I'll never forget. Um, I was, uh, I had had two, I know I'd had, I think all three of my children, I was in a study group in Los Angeles, a neuro, uh, physiology study group and the leader just kept on pounding into the conversation that we need to understand the difference between top down and body up Mm. behaviors. And once it sunk in, I just had tears running down my face because I had a a child, a daughter that I was disciplining and using, um, you know, the great cognitive behavioral methods that I had been taught in the last decade of all those years of graduate school, PhD, psychology. And I realized I was barking up the wrong tree. Mm. She wasn't a behavior problem. She had difficulty calming her nervous system. Mm. And I think that that mind shift and why I named the first, was actually the second book I wrote, Beyond Behaviors, is that we're we need to become more sophisticated in how we view behaviors, human our human children behaviors. And we're not talking about it enough, in my
1: opinion. No, we're not. I agree with you. Actually, coming back to that book, can you describe that iceberg that you talk about? And I love yeah. how you painted for each child, because then it might not look the same, right? It, maybe right. You, if you paint a picture, it'll help parents to view this when they're, you know, with their own child.
0: Yes. Well, yeah. there's a popular saying, um, Now that that's behaviors have meaning. And I think that's a great saying, but it needs more specificity. In my practice, actually, I would draw these icebergs, I would kind of say, like, I was, I was uh, working with a family with a child with challenging behaviors, which is my specialty. And I would find myself drawing like, okay, here's the tip of the iceberg. Here are the behaviors we see the kicking, the screaming, Mm -hmm. the, the running away or the whatever, you know, whatever have you, those, those challenging behaviors. And then underneath the waterline, I'd say like in an iceberg, you don't see, if you're in a boat above the water, you don't see what's below, but that's like Mm -hmm. 80 to 90% of the big chunk of ice. So for each child, there are potentially millions of causes for the triggers, for the, for the nervous system distress, for the behaviors. Mm -hmm. And we have to look at each child individually. So in that book, Beyond Behaviors, I also have a a blank iceberg. Mm -hmm. So you can write the behaviors of above for your child. And then below, you can start to think about, uh, and I, you know, those, those reasons, and we go from everything from the body to sensory processing, to thoughts and emotions. You know, we put them in four different big buckets, but they're literally, every child is different and we all have different triggers.
1: I love that you bring up sensory processing whenever (laughs) in these books, because it's something that we didn't talk about. And I was actually speaking to my mother-in-law about this today. And she's like, we never knew about that in my day. You know, we never spoke about that. And even now she's a, a teacher in elementary school. And they don't know about this. And I have a friend who struggles, you know, her, her child struggles a little bit with the sensory sensitivity and just turning the lights down or realizing that there's a lot of noise around the child makes a big difference in their behavior. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of sensory sensitivities?
0: Yeah, this is such an exciting area. Mm. Of Oh my gosh, this area is so exciting. Yeah,
1: I agree because I find it helps so many kids that might have been misunderstood for so long. Yes, yeah,
0: yeah. yes. So about... 25 years ago, I was, I don't know if you've read some of the work of Stanley Greenspan, but Stanley Greenspan, Serena Weider were, um, they began uh, an organization called the Zero to Three Foundation, the National Clearinghouse for Infants and Toddlers or something like that. And so their very early research introduced this idea of individual differences. What they noticed in their research was that um, babies Uh, had different capacities in how they were taking in information from the environment, which is, which is the way we live. We, Mm -hmm. we breathe, we hear, we smell, we touch. That's how we, that's how we are in the world. Mm -hmm. We meaning humans (laughs) and even (laughs) mammals. Right. And so this idea that humans process information and all information is sensory. Differently blew my mind. So, with those children that I was working with, especially the toddlers that uh, you know, some of the typical toddlers that I that I work with are kids who maybe um, literally asked to leave several preschools for challenging behaviors, mm-hmm. right? whose whose concern, um, whose whose family and and schools are concerned about their harming somebody else by throwing something right, or running out in the street. And so when we took this lens of looking at their each of their sensory systems, and I have to say, I came up uh, upon this from a completely different field of occupational therapy. Mm -hmm. And I studied with occupational therapists at two training programs at universities here in um, and medical center here in Los Angeles. I was I, I was trailing OTs or pediatric occupational therapists for five years. Mm -hmm. And that's where I learned that the stress response of human behaviors is coming from the sensory, the way each child processes sensory information. And if that sounds a little complicated, just think about it as we parents are sensory information, (laughs) our voices it's- our smells how we move our body <laughs> and and some of us trigger our own children mm. without even knowing it mm. so you know yeah that whole sensory processing so come That's to the full too. come to 22 you know 2022 this year <laughs> um, and starting from 2017 or 18 like about five years ago I began uh, studying also dr Lisa Feldman Barrett And she has done a lot of research in something called interoception, Mm. which is the sensory system that is coming from our insides, Mm. our gut, our viscera, our organs, and our hormone system, feeding up to the brain that's causing these basic feeling states. Mm. So it's like this arc of 30 years is starting to really, really come together in the neuroscience Mm -hmm. world. But believe me, that's kind of ivory tower. They aren't clinicians. (laughs) And I, 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 you are, I know you're a neuroscientist, but you are a mom and you're practical. (laughs) (laughs) But a lot of people are doing lab studies Mm -hmm. on animals or different or theories, Mm -hmm. and we have to take it out of the ivory tower, in my opinion, and into our living rooms, our kitchens, our bedrooms. Yes, (laughs)
1: quickly, because kids need this. The children need this research. Yeah, I know.
0: Oh, Cindy, kids Mm -hmm. need this. And especially, I think all kids and families need this. But here in the States, I've been pleading with organizations, our government, to look at our foster children. That's a subset of children that we know have experienced developmental trauma. Yep. The reason they're foster children is that they've had early relational or developmental trauma. Mm. And if we look at those children under the old lens of behavioral management, or I should say when we do, mm. the treatments that we are giving them are actually making their behaviors worse.
1: Yeah, I agree with yeah. you. Yeah. This yeah. has to change, and we know so this much the research to that it doesn't make sense to me sometimes that it's not changing quickly enough, <laughs> because yeah. we have the research to back this up, and even Doctor Perry talks about this. Like, I mean, there's that there, we have there's just so much around this. Um, and, and in terms of the the children too, you know, in in I'm sure there are parents that are listening that m- might have adopted a child and are wondering how to approach this, and they might still have that lens of bad behavior and consequences and discipline. How do we how do we get out of that as a parent too? If if we're just seeing a lot of non compliance and things that you know a child doing things that might be harmful to them or to those around them, how do we see that beyond the behavior, as you said? when there's just so much that we're not seeing that's internal and part of, you know, in their body.
0: Right. Right. Well, the, the first thing we can do is ask ourselves when you see a behavior, especially if it comes on very quickly and it doesn't really make sense. Right. Yeah. If it, if it seems like a child, maybe, I don't like this word, but overreacting mm-hmm. to a situation, right. Um, it's and I I guess we may also say that children, if you have adopted a child, certain children are more vulnerable. Um, Children with trauma are more vulnerable, but children like my, my own daughter who had a very stable home, but she had very profound sensory processing differences Mm -hmm. and autonomic differences are very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So it, it doesn't mean that your child has, is, has trauma. It means that your child Is experiencing these moments, these moments of distress very powerfully. So the first thing we do is check, check out, is this a a top down or body body up behavior? If it's top down, uh, then you, you know, like a child maybe steals something or hides something and lies about it. You know, those are tender difficult parenting moments where we can confront the situation with boundaries and logic and natural consequences, things like that. Mm. That's a very different scenario from a child who maybe you're having dinner and all of a sudden they start to turn red and get very upset and maybe throw some food Mm. because something has upset them. That's what we would call a a stress behavior or a body up behavior. And then, so figuring out the difference is really important because in the, in that situation, we wouldn't go to reasoning and consequences and thinking and talking.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. We would go to
0: stable, stabilizing our nervous
1: systems Mm. together. I love that you've just contrasted that because I think as parents sometimes, especially with new parents experiencing tantrums for the first time or even behavior that's more challenging with an older child, I think we go into the mode of like regulating right away, like teaching them as they're crying or upset. It's like I got, you know, either you're trying to calm them or you're getting upset at them and it's not the right moment. You really need to think about, especially if it's body up sort of thing where you just need to help their system calm down.
0: Yeah. And it's so, uh, please I mean, it's natural for us to do of that. Of course, so, yeah, I do it. Yeah, all the time. it's so natural yeah. to want to calm them down as quickly as possible and give them some context. Yeah. And and words are great. Yeah. So, I mean, for a toddler who's just like bereft because the <laughs> they got the blue cup yeah. and they really wanted the pink cup, um, <laughs> just you know. W- It's very tempting to just say, well, it's still a cup, honey, Mm. or, you know, I know you're very, very disappointed, (laughs) which could work, but maybe taking a step back and just thinking about the nervous system first, like, Mm. oh, that was a surprise. Mm. (laughs) When we say something like that to a toddler, because there's something called prediction error going on, their brain was a half a second ahead thinking I know I'm getting that blue cup. I just know it. And when the pink cup comes along, it's a body up response. It, it feels dreadful. Yes. We, adults can't get understand that because we were we can't remember our own prediction errors as toddlers. <laughs> It's so
1: great. I guess you well, you just described it, but the prediction error thing, you talked about that. Is, is that in your newer book? I remember reading about that. I just can't yeah, remember that which one.
0: Yeah, book. yeah that's I love the, that. Uh, that comes from the theory of constructed emotions mm-hmm. in uh, Barrett's lab, and um, I really think it's so fascinating to think about the brain as a prediction machine, mm-hmm. and the way the brain works is through statistical learning, which means the more experiences you have, the better you're going to be get at predicting and think about how few experiences toddlers have in variation, Mm. right. And in life experience. So that's one of the reasons it's the brain loves predictability. Humans love to predict what's going to happen next. And I, and I, and I say that like, like that's conscious and subconscious. So when a toddler, um, maybe is expecting to stay at grandma and grandpa's house and they find out that they have to leave in two minutes That. Yeah is uh could be if they love if they're having so much fun <laughs> and they're predicting they have longer
1: yes that is, i'm <laughs> laughing because this is exactly what happened to me tonight we were talking earlier before and yeah. mike my, my, i was looking at the time and i said guys we need to leave I, i'm recording a podcast tonight i tried to help them and by the time we got here it's it was not it was a difficult scene but it's exactly yes. that it's like And then grandma and grandpa offered ice cream right before we left, but there was no time left. (laughs) And I told grandma and grandpa (laughs) that we had to leave. So it was, and I get it. I I mean, if you put yourself in a place of compassion and inside your child's brain or body, you kind of realize, well, yeah, that's not fun. Like I could have stayed, had ice cream, stayed up later. and, And instead of having to go home to go to bed. it's a bad
0: choice which really which one sounds better um and and then there's this other thing that comes in and it's called self-regulation and as adults when we get hit with a prediction error like when something bad happens like I don't know we we were ready getting ready to go to a very um A big dinner where my mom was being honored for some charity work she did. And my husband had to go to the hospital. Something Mm -hmm. happened. So it was a huge disappointment, Mm -hmm. but the prediction error was taken care of by self regulation saying, well, we have priorities. Mm -hmm. This is more important. They will film it, Mm -hmm. I'll be able to see it later. You, our adult brains can frame disappointments and prediction errors. Most of our, most healthy adults, right? Parents can pre, can frame our prediction errors, and we expect that children should be able to as well. Mm-hmm. But they mm-hmm. don't have that ability yet. So very, very good little children, which I'm sure yours are, <laughs> like beautiful, good little children, can't just say, "Oh, we understand." <laughs> You know, that ice cream looks so good, but I'll look forward to it in a week from now. That
1: just doesn't happen. That's not developed yet. No, exactly. It's It's not developed yet. And I think this touches a little bit upon the topic you mentioned, like the, in your new book, it's the expectation gap. That really, that really made me like sit a little bit and say, you know what, we we do sometimes, we do have this, is it like you're talking like these high expectations? I'm, I'm guessing when we think of our kids. Yeah, it's
0: actually the gap is the, the difference between what a child is, is reliably able to do ac- according to their neurodevelopment mm-hmm. and what they're actually able to do in the moment.
1: Uh-huh. So
0: this is one reason um, that it's tricky because as parents, we think, oh, you know, they were able to do that yesterday or this morning. So certainly we know they have that ability to do it now. Mm. And with toddlers, that expectation gap lives because their ability to manage their emotions and behaviors floats throughout the day, Mm. according to so many different variables that underneath the iceberg idea, Mm. right? So the expectation gap is when we're expecting, when we believe a child should be able to pull it together and manage something, for example, we expect that they can do something that developmentally, they don't reliably yet have that ability. That's why we mm-hmm. can that's why it's so tricky because it feels like they can. Even toddlers are so conversant. They're so bright, mm-hmm. right? They're amazing. They can talk to us. they can tell stories. They're so cute.. <laughs> yeah, they <are. laughs> but their mental abilities are one thing, but their self-control abilities are another. And that's mostly what the expectation gap is about.
1: The more we see it this way, I think the more compassionate we can be, you know, when our child has these big behaviors or big um, emotions, because we're starting to understand what's going on inside their brain and and, and their body and what's contributing to all these behaviors. I'm thinking back to that iceberg that you mentioned. And I I feel that, you know, some parents, we, we could understand it when it comes to toddlers and preschool Children, because it's the hitting, it's the yelling, it's the you know, it's things that make or a little bit easier perhaps to address. And you could say, like, they're tired or it's sensation or whatever it is. But what happens when they're a little bit older, um, early elementary school and elementary school? Are we still using that, you know, iceberg or is it shifting?
0: That's a great question, and we actually are using the iceberg on adults on ourselves. So <laughs> it's throughout the
1: lifespan. Yeah, it makes sense.
0: <laughs> it makes sense. the The things under you know inside of the um, the bottom of the iceberg are shifting mm-hmm. as we age. But let me address that. I think that's a very important um, um, comment that you made because. We really need to look at developmental age and not chronological age. Mm. So there are very many developmentally young um, elementary school kids, 4th graders, 5th graders, 10, 11, 12. I've worked with many, many developmentally young teenagers Mm. who may have less um, regulatory abilities Mm. than a 5-year-old. So, uh, you know, it's according to your, your developmental stage, Mm -hmm. not your, how old you are. Mm -hmm. And um, so many different pieces go into social and emotional development.
1: That is such Um, an important part. It's such an important part. I think that is something, you know, emotion regulation skills and, and social emotional skills, I think are two things that I've been trying to be a bit more vocal about, because I think that in terms of preschool years and even early elementary school, we place a lot of focus on academic skills, which are important. I'm not saying they're not, but we need to place a lot more importance as a society and as a health system on these skills for the child's well-being their be- their future and all of that it's ju- they're just so important and you know i've i've described a little bit of the this tripartite model of you know parental socialization which touches on the three aspects that help a child build their emotion regulation skills and parents are a huge part they're one of the three major parts and the parents relationships you know within the home and i'm thinking back to the the past 2 years and the emails i've received from parents you know struggling with themselves with their own mental health with relationships within the home and and a lot of it goes back to her childhood and and some people it goes back to trauma and when they were very young so you know i guess with all of this like where do we begin the the work and the the healing Mm.
0: well it's a big question (laughs) it's such a big question and, and but all those those comments and emails um that you and, and I got during the pandemic really, I think, revealed that vulnerability that mm. we all have inside because so much of our, our structures, our social structures were taken away yeah. or changed mm. and so much fear was entered into our environment. Mm. So Dr. Porges, Dr. Stephen Porges talks about cues of safety and cues of threat, our world was filled with cues of threat and in many ways it continues to be for different reasons. Um, We have a a horrible spat of, of gun violence Mm. here in the States and, and um, yeah. So what, how do we make sense of it? Where do we start? Where does healing begin? And I really think that it begins with this, this idea of Awareness. Mm. And I have, again, I have so much compassion for parents and for the burdens we carry. Mm. But the parents that I've worked with that have had the most relief are those who are able to kind of tune in to the wisdom of their bodies. Mm. So many parents have histories where their body had to go into this fight or flight system in order to manage or to cope. Um, And not because necessarily they had a trauma history, but maybe they had working parents and maybe they were the oldest and they had to make all the lunches and make Mm -hmm. sure everyone was, you know, okay. Or maybe they were just a very anxious child and the parents didn't know it because the anxiety was hidden Mm -hmm. inside. So tuning into those cues from the body is such a gift we can give ourselves. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, Those, uh, the studies are showing that those adults who can cue into those cues from that are coming from inside those interoceptive cues um, have less inflammation in their body, Mm -hmm. so lower blood pressure and um, kind of healthier numbers in their actual blood work. So it's amazing. This mind body connection Mm -hmm. is so it's so connected. It
1: is. Yeah. So
0: paying attention to yourself with awareness, with mindfulness, not with judgment, like, oh no, I'm feeling this again, but oh, curiosity, hmm. my heart's beating fast. I am feeling hopeless or I'm feeling really blue or dark, or I don't know what this night is going to bring. I don't know if I'll be able to sleep through the night because my child might need me. Hmm. And that dread that parents feel when they're wondering if they're up for this job. Mm. All of those kind of feelings I think with compassionate awareness and community. That's having right. community again, yeah. having friends, family that you feel is is supportive, next door neighbors. Let's we need to get into community again. Yeah. I think.
1: I agree with we that. We are very
0: lonely right now. Yeah.
1: I had started during the pandemic, Am I the Only One, on Sundays, like on Instagram, because a lot of parents felt oh. that their own troubles were only theirs. And I was trying to show them, like somebody would post, you know, is it is, is, am I the only one that has a child who doesn't want to brush your teeth? And then you would have like 60% of parents. And they would write to me personally oh. and say, I thought it was the only one. And oh, it's so it feels beautiful. good. <laughs> and it really that's- does.
0: <laughs> that was leveraging it, Lever- leveraging social media to help people feel less alone. We do I love feel, that. But we
1: do feel, parenting is very lonely. <laughs> you know, I, I find, and I was lucky that when I had my first child seven years ago, th- there were communities and I can go out for walks with moms, but it still felt lonely when you're home and, you know, you don't know if you're doing the right thing. And even if you yes. have people to call sometimes, you know, it's, it's just, it's not easy. Um, it's not easy. Yeah.
0: And I don't think there's quite anything in our lives that have this, that have such high stakes. Mm. Mm. You know, it's, mm. it's feels different than like maybe a different identity, like <laughs> your work or something like mm. that. But our children are, <laughs> it's such a big responsibility. It feels so overwhelming
1: sometimes and lonely. Yes. And I think you also discover new parts of yourself that you didn't know were there because you like I said you never had to deal with a tantrum or anything you know you just had to <laughs> you you took care of yourself and now there's somebody else there and all of a sudden you realize there are different layers of yourself that you never explored and I think that's been my big journey in parenting um you talk about something in your latest book which is the body budget is it no wait was it yeah the body yeah, budget the body budget and I actually yeah. love that can you explain that a little bit more and I think it just helps us bring all this together in terms of like being able to observe our child and understand what's going on.
0: I love, it's actually not my term. It's uh, again, I, uh, uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett's Mm. term, the body budget. It's her word for the scientific concept of allostasis, Mm. which is basically the, um, you know the way the systems of our bodies stay mm. stay uh, balanced, but you don't have to remember that word, the fancy word. But the body budget is saying that every thing that happens to us, every interaction we have with people, everything we eat, every every movement we make influences our our body budget, mm. ours and our children's, mm. and. We can think about it. Actually, it's so elegant because we can think about it as like a financial budget. Um, Sometimes we get depleted. Mm. Sometimes your bank account is running really low. (laughs) For humans, that can happen from so many things, but lack of sleep, Mm. lack of emotional support, not eating enough food. Uh, being dehydrated, um, incubating a a virus. All there's, again, like the iceberg. There's so Mm. many things that can take away our body budget. Mm. Um, But then there's this wonderful idea about deposits. And sometimes our children need deposits and a deposit would be a hug, Mm. um, a cozy cozy little um, reading a book together Mm. or having some special time with a parent. Or, or, you know, sitting by a, by a crackling fire when it's cold and, and just kind of enjoying the moment. Those are all like deposits. Mm. Um, and when our children misbehave, we have a tendency to try to do withdrawals. Like if it's a stress, be- again, if it's a body up stress behavior, we have a tendency to think, oh, this needs a withdrawal. Mm. This needs punishment this needs a consequence, this needs a time out, when in reality, sometimes those little body budgets are depleted, and they need deposits, not withdrawals, they need to go to bed, or they need to, you know, to have some encouragement. So the body budget is a very elegant concept that I imported into the parenting world. And I think it's gonna, we're playing around with it, try to Um, make it very useful for parents.
1: I think it is. I think just having these ideas, everything that you've been mentioning so far, just allow us to see our child a little differently and to learn how to observe them. Because I think the more we learn how to observe our child, any child, because even within my home with with three kids, they don't function the same way. They don't have the same needs. They don't have the same sensory needs as as well, you know? And I think that we, as parents, sometimes we look for scripts exactly what to do and how to do it, and we apply it to our children, but it won't work. So it won't work for every child. We need to really. What you're helping us do is understand how to observe our child and understand their needs, so that we can look at it from curiosity and compassion, you know, rather than just disciplining right away. And like you said, with the consequences, um, which is so helpful helpful to us parents. There's another concept, and you touched upon it just very slightly before. You talked about safety, um, and I, I think you know sometimes we think of these tantrums again as, as, or big emotions. And I say tantrums, but I want to make sure that I cover older children as well, but these big emotions and um, that we look at these situations as wanting attention or trying to do this on purpose. You know, sometimes we might forget that there's a reason behind it, but safety is not something that we might think of. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit more on that?
0: Yeah. That is an, another kind of mind-blowing concept mm. that this it's a subconscious sense of safety so it's not you know living in a, a safe house mm. necessarily it's it's a, this subconscious detection of threat and safety which is what is happening all the time in our um, subconscious in our in our brain in our body dr. porges calls it neuroception mm. and it's actually uh, defined as the Our human brain is always seeking safety and making sure we're safe. When it detects threat, um, then it spurs us into action. And usually that at first action it would be the fight or flight response. And um, so if we think about threat, then it's threat is understood in a different way as well. Threat isn't someone like pulling a gun out necessarily, but threat could be. Um, let's say a smell that the child doesn't even know is very annoying and nauseating to them, right? And all of a sudden you see a behavior come out like 20 minutes later. It could be ambient noise, mm-hmm. background and foreground noises. Some children, like the, like the ones that are the hot, the frequent uh, getting kicked out of preschool, I found that many of them are hypersensitive to the bouncing off of noise on the walls, which creates this distress, this safety threat in the nervous system. Mm. The child doesn't know it, the teacher doesn't know it, but after about an hour, um, we found with a certain subset of kids, when they were, for example, wearing noise-canceling headphones, that their challenging behaviors went way down. So this, this sense of threat, again, can come from our sensory systems, um, but it can also come from um, how, you know, how we interact with our children. Mm-hmm. So yelling at them, um, obviously spanking, and doing those kinds of things mm-hmm. where the adult is not in control definitely hits at a very powerful human threat response. And those kinds of things can change the brain if it happens long enough, can change the brain to
1: expecting kind
0: of bad things Mm. to happen. And we certainly want kids to expect safety rather than threat.
1: And we don't realize that it can happen really young as well, right? Like I, I, I read this study a long time ago, but there was a study where they had infants. I think they were only a few weeks old and they were sleeping and the parents were having really aggressive arguments or loud arguments while the baby was sleeping and they would monitor the heart rate and that would increase the blood pressure would increase the you know breathing would increase and the baby's sleeping so i think we you know when it comes to threat it's such an important part for us to talk about because it doesn't matter if you're pregnant or you know it's a newborn or it's an eight-year-old they're going to Look for safety within their home, and if it's not there, it'll impact their um, stress system, as you said. Um, yeah, uh, that's
0: powerful. Mm. I think I remember that study, and I, I filed it away. I didn't really it's want. It's been to, a while. Um, it's old. Shit. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, it was pretty powerful. Mm. And I, I think we don't want parents to feel like, oh my gosh, this is so scary. I could wreck my kid. Mm. Um, but I think it's very important to understand that. I've heard parents say, "Well." We can argue in front of a, our baby because they're so young; they don't know what's they don't know what's happening. They don't know it, but they can hear the sense of um, the tone of voice, yeah, exactly. and that's a trigger for this for the stress response. Yeah. So, and there has to be
1: consistency. Important. I it's, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that because I never want parents to feel bad, or if they're in a certain situation right now and they're listening to, to this, and they're they you know maybe the house environment is not a safe one right now. It's it's about consistency and, you know, the child, I think, I, I don't remember who said this, but it, like all you need is one safe connection with an adult, I think, or a caregiver, right? And then it That's kind right. of helps with the healing process or the, you know, helping that child.
0: It's an anchor. Yeah. All you need is one. One adult. So many, I don't know if it's Edtronic or... One of probably a number of researchers, Mm. but oh, it might have been um, Alan Shroof. I he's great. He he's one of the main attachment researchers. Mm. But an adult who sees the child's distress, one adult is really incredible. That can be the anchor, right? Exactly. And the other part about if you're concerned or worried about your child, say they were experiencing uh, a stressful classroom, and some, you know, the other thing to remember is that. Stress becomes toxic when it is over and over and over again. Yeah. So, weird single events or or events that happen every so often in the presence of loving caregivers isn't going to cause your child's brain to,
1: exactly.
0: um, you know, change yeah. in a in a unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. So, I think we also have to realize the power of that of the parent, the power yes. of of a one consistent parent.
1: Yes. I guess to end this conversation, I'd love to hear from you in terms of maybe things that we need to be aware of when a child is very young to help them with their behavior and emotions as they're growing up and and maybe summarizing a little bit about what we said, like what are, what are the three most important things that parents should try to apply or or be mindful of? So let's start with maybe the first part of, you know, when they're very young, what should we make sure we are mindful of in terms of those the stepping stones?
0: Yeah. The most important characteristic when they're very young from pregnancy, birth and the first year is responsive care. Mm -hmm. And what responsive care is, is meeting that baby's need when the baby has it to your best ability. Mm -hmm. So when a baby cries, we comfort them and sometimes it won't help, but at least we try, you know, if they're hungry, we feed them. If they need a diaper change, we change it. We respond in real time to their needs. Responsive care is tied more than anything else to the development of resilience Mm -hmm. in human beings. So respond, respond, take away the noise that tells you that if you over respond to a baby, you might spoil them or something like that. Thank you. Um, Yeah. Right. That Mm -hmm. is the, that is the key um, for our little ones and then i think as they get older we didn't talk about this but the idea that every single child has their own challenge zone oh. so as good parents we do want our children to stretch and to grow and if we're only if we're protecting them it's not even possible to protect them from every every challenge <laughs> right we wouldn't want to we just want to have this watchful curious eye mm to see if they're consistently in their challenge zone or if they're con- if they're going over it. So if the, if what the experiences are that your child is involved in are and that could be everything from daily living activities to the type of academics they're in, if it's consistently putting them into above their challenge zone, we want to move it down to to meet that particular child's needs. That's such a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think responsive care on the front end and then following each child to make sure that their body budget isn't too extendedly stretched or that they're just chilling and not really learning <laughs> new things because it's true. adversity is part of being human. Yeah. Feeling uncomfortable is part of being human. And that's okay as long as you have a wonderful caregiver there noticing it, being present with you being curious yeah. with you and helping you essentially digest and metabolize mm-hmm. difficult emotions.
1: I love that. That's, you know, especially with that challenge, we, we do want to protect and help our kids and we don't want them to feel uncomfortable or sad or mad in these situations, but they really need to experience those Um, it's just so hard for us parents I think sometimes to see them that way and you just want to here let me do it for you (laughs) let let me end this moment for you (laughs) oh yes it's so
0: it's so so, we do we love them so much and it's true tolerating our own distress and their distress I think is a is a project Um, I know as a mom of adult children I'm still working on that (laughs) in myself so it's a developmental project
1: yeah what are some hopes you have uh, with regard to our system right now and what changes you'd love to see in the next 10 years, five years, mm. hopefully, maybe.
0: <laughs> I am hoping, hoping, hoping that we will move from the, the well-intentioned label of being trauma-informed. Mm. You know, that's a that's a label that our systems are using. Oh, this is a trauma-informed practice. This is evidence based practice. I hope we're going to move away from that and towards trauma responsive care. Mm. So there are a lot of old studies out there that are being cited as evidence for how we take care of our vulnerable children. Mm. Many of those studies on the back end use punitive techniques mm. such as timeouts, mm. holding children in chairs, closing doors, you know, secluding them and restraining them. So my hope and prayer, really, Mm -hmm. because I believe that we are causing some damage in our public systems, especially, but for our systems to understand that trauma responsive care means paying attention to the nervous system of every caregiver and every child and making sure that they're not living in threat or terror Mm -hmm. or fear, making sure they're just in their right cozy challenge.
1: So I love that. I'm happy I asked you. I wanted to hear that from you, you know, like I do think we need a lot of changes in our system and you are right on. That is the first and most important one. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Where can we find you and how can we learn? From well, you?
0: Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. <laughs> uh, my website is uh, monadellahook.com. I'm on Facebook um, and Instagram, uh, Dr. Mona Delahook. And um, yeah, my latest book is uh, Brain Body Parenting and I'm going to be launching um, a uh, parent community, a membership community, okay. the par- Brain Body Parenting Collective um, in the, in August. So, more information on my website. I'm just really very excited to continue the conversation with parents, support parents, and um, mm-hmm. support each other because there are no 100 answers. As you know, research new research is coming out every day. The brain is still mm-hmm. a new frontier. So this is a mm-hmm. this is something we'll all do together. We'll learn together.
1: I can't wait. Thank you. And we'll have all the links to what you just mentioned in our show notes. Thank you to everyone for listening. And we will be, uh, I can't wait to speak to you guys again. Thank you. That is all friends. I hope you enjoyed this interview. Thank you again for tuning into the Curious Neuron podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating and rate it out of five stars. Come visit us on Instagram at curious underscore neuron, and I will see you next time. Bye guys.